Well, good evening. Welcome back to Church History, our overview, uh, standing on the shoulders of giants as we look back at uh, now the 20th century. We're, we're almost at the doorstep of our own modern heritage. And uh, what's neat is the last class when we talked about liberalism uh, and the the machinations that were in motion of the 19th century that really laid the groundwork for this class and our next, which will be our, our final class. Uh, so what kind of what we're going to do is instead of taking arbitrary, almost unnatural chronological cut, say 1950, and pick it up next time with 1950, uh, we're going to take some of the streams of thought and the movements that began in, in the early 20th century and carry it on up to today. And then next class we're going to pick up with very similar, parallel, concurrent movements uh, like evangelicalism and, and some of the more modern, postmodern things that, that face us today. So this class and next class really are uh, two sides of the same coin. So you don't want to miss out on either one. Uh, we can see from our agenda this evening that we're going to catch up a little bit with uh, some more of the uh, modern embodiments of liberalism. And since uh, Brad wasn't able to join us last time, he's going to chip in with uh, some things that he wants to talk about that. And then we're going to look at some of the 20th century responses to liberalism and how the, the church responded to this, this new and uh, heretical teaching. Uh, but first, I'm going to invite Brad to, uh, to start us out with a word of prayer. Well, Father, we are aware, uh, those of us who have been at this for a long time now, a year and a half, almost two years, um, that we are indeed standing on the shoulders of giants. We thank you for the covenant community that you have provided for your people and the ways that we are connected not only to one another in the present, but also to all those who have been in Christ. Lord, just like Ephesians tells us that Christ is a cornerstone and we are spiritual stones, all connected to one another and all tied into Jesus. We pray that you would open our hearts and minds and that you would uh, cause us to learn the things that we need to and... Uh, be able to put them uh, all of these things to use in our everyday uh, walk with you, our our community with one another, and our uh, evangelism of the lost. Pray that you would give us a heart for those who don't know Jesus to come to Him, and for us to be willing to share the good news, excited to share the good news of Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So as we jump in, um, you can see by the title there, Liberalism Continued. This is really just picking up with uh, where we left off last time. So if you maybe forgot a few things, you can go back and listen to that or watch the video online. And uh, that first bullet is just a recap of what liberalism is. It's basically Christianity emptied of everything of meaning. That it's not necessarily historical. Uh, the Bible is not God's Word. It's not historically accurate. It's more of the getting to experience religion and, and God through the tradition of Christianity. And uh, again, we see some of the 
the modern embodiments include uh, the Jesus Seminar, which I mentioned last time. I don't know if anybody had a chance to go and look them up a little bit. I was flipping through my copy of uh, Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ. And um, Jesus Seminar is mentioned many times in that book because in the 60s and 70s uh, they were real popular in in the higher criticism circles of, I think the number was, they deemed 82% of what Jesus said in the Bible as not really being what Jesus said. And, and the re remaining 18% was, was questionable. So they, they really just tossed out everything that we understand to be uh, truthful uh, from the Word of God and would include things like the Gospel of Thomas, which is uh, a dubious, uh, pseudonymous book written centuries after the Gospels to be included as one of the genuine Gospels. Um, feminism, which we'll look at a little bit more next class, but that was another movement that grew out of the struggle between religion. There, there can be a Christian feminism, but there, there's also a secular one that started to grow in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Uh, and then process theology. Um, maybe Brad can mention a little bit more about that, but this is the idea that, that God is changing with the world, that He's not objectively the same, He's not immutable, but that almost Darwinian or Marxist where there's a, uh, the world is going through a process not only biologically, not, not economically, but in every sense historically. And so God is also going through a process and changing with us. So all these things uh, continue to be thorns in the, the flesh of the church even this century. Along with this uh, rose over the, the first half of the century, contextual theologies. If you read through Gonzales, and, and you will notice that over the course of this semester, we sort of have gotten away from Gonzales chapter by chapter. He focuses a little more on, on uh, international things, which is, is fine. I'd love to know more about the church in Asia and, and Latin America. It, it's just we, we can't do it all. Um, but he does cover some of the contextual theologies, talking about the liberation theology, which began in Latin America. And what liberation theology was, is basically reinterpreting the Bible through the lens of Jesus is for the poor and oppressed. And it was reinterpreted as we are Israel in bondage in Egypt. That Jesus is not only Savior, but He's liberator. That He came in order for the, the poor and oppressed can uh, be vindicated, really. And the social gospel is, is very much even a buzzword today. Um, I was trying to think of the, the man's name. I, I can't think. He's, he would consider himself an evangelical leader, and I think he's got the ear of many folks near the, the White House, but uh, he's one who has debated uh, Al Mohler and, uh, on the mission of the church. What is the mission of the church? And Mohler's side was, you know, we need to make disciples. We need to evangelize and, and equip. And again, I can't remember his name, but uh, his idea of the mission of the church is to serve, serve society, serve the poor, feed them, uh, redistribute funds so that the poor is, are brought up to uh, our standards. So even today, the social gospel, it's not that the Bible excludes 
the social aspect of, of the gospel, and we'll see that even more so next class when we talk about evangelicalism. But that, it's not an either-or. It, it's a both-and, but you, you cannot exclude the, um, the teachings of the faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints. Now, uh, of special note to America is the black theology, or black liberation theology, which actually sprung out of the roots of uh, during the Civil War in that time period, where blacks who, have, who were enslaved would find hope in the country that they were looking forward to. Not America, but the heavenly country, in being uh, liberated in spirit uh, throughout all eternity. And how that developed is it took on uh, a, a bit of that liberation theology um, that was being taught in Latin America and it saw the black man, no matter where his economic status was, as Jesus being black. He is not only for the black man, but he himself is black for the sake of uh, bringing the black community um, not even to equality, really, but it was to vindicate their oppression and bring them uh, out of the oppression of, of the white man. So it was very racially tense, uh, which is demonstrated through the, the civil rights movement. And one thing I will say, both of liberalism and of the, uh, the responses to liberalism, and I'm going to probably say this a couple of times this evening, that the movements are wide enough and diverse enough where you can have very different people with very different views advocating under the same umbrella. For black theology, for instance, um, I don't think of his name. Uh, of course, I didn't write it down. Can't, uh, James Cone was the father of black theology. He, had, he was the one who said that Jesus was black. He, and and he kind of put it in the context where we see pictures today in, in Western society of Jesus being long, blonde-haired, and blue-eyed. And we know that's not correct because he was Jewish in a, in a Jewish context. But neither was he African or, or Asian, Oriental, or these things. But Cohn identified Jesus as black for the very purpose of um, raising the black community out of the oppression. And again, it had... We'll talk about the benefits and drawbacks of these movements, especially as we, we look into Pentecostalism, fundamentalism, and so forth. There are things that are praiseworthy in many of these movements, but often they're outweighed by the, the drawbacks. And uh, so within the movement, you have people like James Cone, who are very almost militant, who could bring about people like Malcolm X. But then on the other side, you have people who are very... Uh, Orthodox, like Martin Luther King Jr., who would um, not advocate a militant style of theology, but nonetheless, uh, there was a, a broad range of beliefs even under that, that same umbrella of liberating the, the black culture. Here's just, to, uh, just a couple of short definitions. Uh, a lot of the information that is short and succinct that will be displayed tonight comes from Theopedia.com and they have a, a lot of good uh, short articles if you want to go up and, and search for almost any movement or theological term they can 
give you a little bit of historical background. But you can see there uh, some of their basic beliefs and understandings within those contextual theology movements. I did want to, uh, here's a, a quote, it said, in that regard, speaking of the black liberation theology, he says, a biblical black theology is necessary because the alternative is an unbiblical black theology. The unfortunate errors of nascent black theology were rooted in the assumption that experiences should be the primary source of truth. And that's from Anthony Carter, who himself is a, a black theologian slash minister. And you can see the, the disparity from Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, and people like Anthony Carter and Thabiti Anyabwile and folks like Jeremiah Wright. And you probably remember being in the news a few years ago when Obama was running for office. It was Obama's um, pastor, a very, if you listen to him, he's a very angry man. Even preaching in the pulpit was a very angry message being put out. So you can see the disparity between people who may fall under uh, the same uh, movement. So what are some of the benefits of this contextual theology, liberation theology? Well, it certainly does reinvigorate the church to identify with the poor and oppressed because, because God does. From the Old Testament on through Jesus' ministry and on through the, the teachings of the apostles that we are to serve and uh, help out minister to those who are oppressed, whether it be orphans, widows, the poor, the foreigner, whoever they may be, and, and seek justice for everyone. And it really helped the church to take what they were preaching and put it into practice. However, you can see the list of drawbacks as well, that uh, just like the quote earlier, that it, it, orthopraxy is right practice, and orthodoxy being right teaching. So it raises your practice, your good deeds, above the teachings and, and beliefs of the faith. Focuses on experience rather than objective truth, objective truth being found in the Word of God. It focuses on changing the status of people in the here and now, on earth, in the geopolitical, socioeconomic atmosphere, rather than liberating them from sin and death. Because so much of liberalism eliminates personal sin and puts it in the category of societal sin. Oh, society. Mm -hmm. And those are the sins that need to be addressed. And you see the reinterpretation of, of the Bible. And uh, much of it, not all of it, but much of it had roots and tendencies towards Marxism and racism and the lack of forgiveness and reconciliation, which we talked about. And, but hopefully some of these things are beginning to be addressed by the, the evangelical church and, and, and that uh, reconciliation is, is underway. Brad, did you want to add anything to liberalism as a whole from its origins in the 18th, 19th century, how it, it promulgated throughout society and, and then even today, how we see it uh, develop and sustained? There were so many, uh, and you, you probably talked about this last time or touched on it, and I just want to 
re-emphasize the sort of the foundations of liberalism. If you think about the church from Constantine on, the church is seeking to make society conform to the church. Well, the church's interpretation of how it should be, the Catholic church's interpretation of how it should be, uh, which led to abuse of power. Uh, from the 17th, 18th century on, the church is struggling uh, because its leaders are oftentimes trying to make the church fit society and the ways that society is, is thinking. And in the 19th century, you've got three bombshells. You have a, you have a uh, philosophical bombshell of relativism, especially with uh, George H.F. Um, no, wait a minute. It's, yes, George W.F. Hegel. Uh, talked about thesis, antithesis, synthesis. This plays out in so many ways. You've got a thesis of this is the predominant thought. Then you've got an antithesis or antithesis. And then you, from that you try to find a synthesis. And it plays out in, in lots of different ways as in politics. Uh, there was a gentleman who said, well, the thesis is the monarchy. The antithesis to that is democracy. And the synthesis is communism. It was Karl Marx that said that. So all of this religious thought is bleeding over all things that are happening in the church within the context of these leaders who claim to be speaking for the church, but they're really speaking for higher education, um, scientific advances, um, philosophical, scientific, and then even literary, as you talked about Julius Wellhausen with the, um, the what's the, what's the term for the uh, Document Pentateuch documentary? Oh, yeah. Yes. Documentary JEDP. JEDP, but it's a documentary hypothesis. That's what I was looking for. Um, that Moses didn't write the Pentateuch, but a collection of authors did. So everywhere you turn, there's relativism with, with um, philosophy. There's Darwinism in science. And also uh, the age of the earth being brought into question. And now um, with the, within the... The, the theological schools, you've got people questioning the authority of Scripture and saying, well, it really wasn't written by Moses. It was a collection of authors, so let's put this all together. And every time you do, you're chipping away at God's authority. So if God is not the ultimate goal, then society becomes the ultimate goal and the social gospel. Just before the turn of the century, Charles Sheldon, a pastor, wrote, in his steps. What would Jesus do? We, you saw the bracelets. It, 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 seemed like such, it seems like such a good idea. But it's part of the social gospel which says that salvation does not come through an individual relationship with Jesus through repentance and faith. But it comes through correcting the ills, curing the ills of society. So uh, the social gospel took root and we're going to be talking about a lot of reactions. It feels like everything just constantly within the church goes like this. You're reacting to an extreme. The pendulum just swings Continuous one way swing. or the other. Uh, finally, in the early 20th century, uh, a, a theologian by the name of Karl Barth 
one of the most influential theologians in all of church history. Uh, and from Basel, Switzerland, Basel, Switzerland, depending on where you're from, you're going to pronounce it differently. Um, stood up to the uh, um, liberals and said, what you're saying is utterly absolute, utter absolute nonsense. If you give no authority to the scriptures, no authority to God whatsoever. And, and so superna a, a, a Christianity devoid of, devoid of the supernatural is no Christianity at all. And so uh, Bart did a great deal of good to combat liberalism, but he was not the most conservative of guys. We would call him New Orthodox, Neo-Orthodox, or part of the New Orthodoxy. It was an orthodoxy in which experience um, becomes primary. Experience with Jesus. All of Bart's theology flowed through Jesus. It had to go through Jesus, but it was a personal relationship that you have with Jesus as we understood it in Scripture. He wouldn't have claimed inerrancy at all. We'll tell a little story later about uh, Carl Henry, who was an evangelical, or the, the, the father, really, of, of modern-day evangelicalism. Uh, hello, an encounter he had with Carl Barth that was quite interesting, but it's not the time for it just yet. What is the... Um, problem with saying oh there is definitely supernatural as opposed to a liberal theology that's trying to demythologize scripture saying take the myths out of scripture and what did you say 80 percent uh, of the scripture was found unreliable who who uh, did this the, the jesus seminar with oh, their yeah, yeah. vast knowledge decided to throw in their little right black chip or whatever it was m&m or something and uh, determine for us all 82% of what Jesus said was not Jesus. So, inerrancy, um, <clears throat> the belief that Scripture is without error, would cause us to have to believe in the supernatural, correct? I mean, we have to because Scripture claims it all the time. Um, what is the problem with believing the supernatural but not believing the inerrancy of Scripture? Was there? Was not there? Exactly. What it? It, what, it was authority. What, what we see. Right. It, it, it becomes subjective. It all becomes subjective. And it's how I interpret Scripture. Scripture, what's true to you may not necessarily be true for me. And when, when that's the case, when, when Scripture itself is not the standard, we become the standard. And really it's no different from, from liberal theology. or it's, It is different, but it's moving in the same direction to where I am the ultimate decider of what is authoritative and not. In fact, that was Bart's big thing. He says the scripture only has authority as we give it authority. Mm -hmm. And there's a sense in which that's true, but there's, there's heresy that's just right at the edges of that comment. Scripture is true whether I give it authority or not. Does it have authority over me if I don't? Well, in a sense it does because Jesus said, you, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father unless he comes through me. So I can say that has no authority for me. But when I, in, when I die without Jesus, then I'm going to find how much authority Scripture has on me. So 
Another uh, gentleman uh, that we need to mention from the early 20th century, Henry Emerson Fosdick, who's a pastor of a uh, Baptist church. Started out as a Presbyterian in the Riverside Baptist. I'm not sure if this was the same church that changed from Presbyterian to Baptist or if he switched churches. But Fosdick uh, wrote a sermon, Will the Fundamentalists, or preached a sermon, Will the Fundamentalists Win? Because fundamentalism had taken root as a reaction to liberalism. And we'll uh, discuss that in just a moment. But Fosdick was uh, no friend of orthodoxy whatsoever. It's, it's amazing to think of the boldness that it takes to stand up in a pulpit and preach against believing the fundamentals and the historical accuracy of, of the scripture you claim to be preaching. You know, in the early uh, 20th century also, um, in America in particular, amongst liberal churches, uh, there was a large push for eugenics. There used to be actually contests. Preachers would preach sermons about the benefits of eugenics, of sterilizing uh, mentally ill people and uh, people for other reasons. So, um, liberal Christianity, li liberal Christianity, which is 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 almost um, an oxymoron, right. um, accepted so many wrong ideas about the ways to improve society. In our reaction, we have gone far too way in the other direction. Yeah, don't ever think that theology is not practical because our culture is living out that those misunderstandings today, that, that we are our own authority. So let's start looking at some of the Protestant um, responses to liberalism. First one being Pentecostalism, and we looked before at the, the roots of Pentecostalism being uh, John Wesley and his notion of uh, perfectionism, and we mentioned uh, Finney also, and last time if you remember uh, Irving, I think it was John Irving, who uh, had a Catholic background but was also Presbyterian and, and not only brought in a unique view of premillennialism but was very charismatic both in the personality sense as well as in the, the biblical sense. Um, so we see the, the roots taking place. There was a holiness movement throughout the middle and later decades of the 19th century. And there at the turn of the century in 1901 we see it, it birth. It, it takes place there in Topeka, Kansas. A man named Parham is, is having classes and uh, a, a ministry there in which they are promoting the return of, of miraculous gifts, and this is the, the first modern uh, episode where uh, someone is speaking in tongues. And it travels by the name of uh, James Seymour. He has some, some ministry, some connection with Parham in Kansas. I believe he passes maybe through uh, Texas to do some ministry there and ends up, if you want your ideas to take root, where do you go? Southern California. Uh, so he ends up in San Francisco and has, I think I heard something like uh, three 
uh, services a day, six or seven days a week for, for nearly three years. And you can imagine being inundated like that, you're, you're going to need, if you're performing something like that, your performance is gonna to need to increase in order to sensationalize, in order to draw a crowd. But once you do, the crowds are gonna start coming and it's gonna spread. And that's exactly what happened, is that there on Azusa Street, where the Pentecostals find their, their birthplace, um, there's an outbreak of speaking in, in tongues, in healings, and uh, from Parham's perspective, and I would agree that they rightly uh, understood that, the, that tongues were real languages. They were foreign languages not known to the, to the speaker. And what this episode did, it was it convinced them saying, okay, we don't need to study languages anymore for the mission field. Let's go out. And they did. They went out to China, Africa, and, and other foreign fields thinking that the tongues that God had blessed them with will be the vehicle of evangelism. And what do you think happened? They got there and they started speaking their tongues. And the people in China and in Africa, they had no idea what they were saying because it was not their language. It was not a language at all. And uh, so this carried on. It, it found uh, root in sensationalism of, from Amy Simple McPherson. And traditionally, uh, women did not have prominent roles in churches, as you can imagine, especially um, uh, traditional settings. But uh, Amy Simple McPherson, uh, twice married, wanted to change that. She wanted to become a minister and, and preach her version of the gospel, which is not really the gospel, but a sensationalism of, of her, her gifts, her, her message. And uh, this really took off. You can imagine in the 20s where things are, are done up big and, and she did that riding in on horses or, or flying in on wires and really creating a, a show. Really the forerunner of today's televangelist where the message is not read or, or taught but displayed somehow. Um, so this really started the, the catching on of, of the Pentecostal movement. And you can see there, there are classic Pentecostals. There are, you know, just like any movement, they go through iterations of, of development. So you can see some of their classic beliefs that uh, they were predominantly Arminian and dispensational. They believed in three distinct works of the Spirit. There's first salvation, but that's not really good enough. Next, you need to be sanctified. And then once you're sanctified, remember this is the idea of, of being perfected, and then you experience the baptism of the Spirit, or Spirit baptism, in which the Spirit baptizes you and is evidenced by the speaking of tongues. And that's what is going to be distinct about Pentecostals. And they basically stay within their own, their own groups. They form Pentecostal churches, and they, we now have Pentecostal denominations. But it wasn't until much later, well, not much later, just uh, 50s, 60, 1960, where uh, it really jumps because of two men. Uh, Dennis Bennett, who was an Episcopal priest, was preaching on the, on the gifts of the Spirit and broke out in tongues. And from that point, uh, the idea of the miraculous gifts returning didn't just stay with the, the small group of Pentecostals, but 
jumped and transcended, not transcended, but it crossed denominational lines, and the other one being Oral Roberts, that he was a Pentecostal who became a Methodist with the intent of really popularizing the teachings of Pentecostalism, and, and that's what happened, especially in America, where um, the charismatic movement um, May, took, took I, up in the 60s, sure. I just want to ask if anyone knows where Oral, Oral Roberts got his start. North Carolina. Fuqua Verena, to be exact. <laughs> if you stand outside of um, uh, Beef O'Brady's and you look straight down, that little church, that Pentecostal church down there is wow. where Oral Roberts, I don't know if that was his first church, but he was only there, I understand, about nine months and huge crowds for that little small place and he moved on we always get the good news stories don't we yeah <laughs> one of the distinctives of the charismatic movement that set itself apart from Pentecostals uh, first being that it is transdenominational and second that they not only believed in tongues being the sign of the spirit but is a sign that you didn't have to have only tongues to show the baptism of the spirit but they believed in, in all the miraculous gifts returning to the church uh, and some of them would would believe rather in two works of the Spirit, being that second baptism uh, or a second blessing rather than three of the Pentecostals. And I do want to say at this point, I already mentioned the, the wide diversity between uh, people under the same umbrella within the same movement. I, I want to say just like I did last time about dispensationalism, uh, Pentecostalism, fundamentalism, whatever the movement is, we're getting closer and closer to home. Uh, and it might start stepping on some toes, and I, I don't want to do that. I want to give you what happened in history, why it's important, and two of the big things that I've been most uh, interested in in studying the biblical foundations for is dispensationalism and the charismatic movement from a biblical perspective. So if anyone wants to talk more about it, I'd, I'd love to do that. Um, we're not going to get deep into it because you can see bullet points, which is about all we can cover. But I want to put that out there that don't feel offended. Uh, if you have questions or comments, I'm not going to feel offended because this is this is our heritage. There's good, there's bad, it's all mixed in between. And especially with these responses to liberalism, you can't say, okay, these are the good guys, these are the bad guys. It's not always black and white, right and wrong. There's a lot of mixture because God is working, but man is in there. We get in the mix. In fact, in the charismatic movement, Oftentimes, when the charismatic movement comes into liberal denominations, Roman Catholicism, it's a good thing. Uh, because um, another uh, characteristic of the charismatic movement is that most of them believe, at some level, the authority of Scripture. And most of them believe the inerrancy of Scripture. And, you know, you, can get, you, you find Jesus in the charismatic movement. And we think of it oftentimes in more traditional churches uh, as sort of a threat, but in reality, uh, it's, it's a real advance of the gospel when it moves into a liberal denomination, oftentimes. It really turns the focus back on the, the inerrancy and the authority of Scripture. So moving beyond the charismatic movement, there began in the 70s and 80s what they deem as the third wave. Pentecostals being the first wave, charismatics being the second wave, and now this third wave uh, takes form. And Sam Storms, who I, I really respect, I, I read as much stuff of his as I can get a hold of, 
Um, he would self-identify as a Calvinistic and charismatic, which is different than, you might say, a Reformed charismatic. Otherwise, you're no longer charismatic because you've been Reformed. But uh, he's a charismatic and Calvinistic. Um, but he's on one end of the spectrum. Within the third wave, you've got the other end of the spectrum, which has people like Kenneth Hagin, Kenneth Copeland, Joyce Meyer, Benny Hinn. You can probably name uh, a dozen more from the top of your head. You can see the diversity between people who would call themselves Pentecostal or Charismatic and perhaps identify within this chronological uh, third wave. Um, but you can see the diversity also is not just chronology, but uh, as Storms points out, and, and I, would, I would be happy to minister with Storms. I would not be happy to sit and minister with Copeland and Hagen and these others because their gospel is a false gospel. Uh, however, Storms is thoroughly orthodox. Um, so you can see how wide... And I would recommend, since this course is... A lot of it is about discerning. Going back to Scripture and say, okay, this is what happened. How are we to biblically understand? Was this a good thing? Was it bad? How do we apply our biblical understanding to similar situations today. And if you're in discussions with, with anyone uh, for or against uh, a charismatic point of view, uh, or any, any discussion really, I would thoroughly encourage you to define your terms. Be clear both in your speaking and clear, you know, ask the other person to clarify, well, what do you mean by second blessing? Well, what do you mean by this or that? Because th these terms really take on the meaning that we give them. And if we're not speaking, again, out of the same dictionary, there can be a lot of misunderstanding, and out of misunderstanding comes uh, a lot of vitriolic, uh, it can all, almost become hatred of fellow brothers and sisters within, within the church. It can also include people who exclude themselves from the church by, by preaching a false gospel. So we really need to be clear about what we mean. I think you're going to find more and more people that you would agree with on most points of theology who are more and more charismatic. That seems to be the trend right now. Yeah. Um, you know, talking about reactions, um, we are reacting to the social gospel. We'll get into that when we start talking about fundamentalism. But even within evangelicalism, we are still reacting to the, to the social gospel. So it's going to be quite a shift if we, as Reformed evangelicals, begin to move toward uh, the gifts of the Spirit being not only um, believed to be in practice, but practicing them, seeing them practice more and more in our, our churches. Did you want to comment on perhaps why the, the charismatic movement is, is so prevalent and catching on in the global south, what we call maybe Latin America, Africa, and so forth? Yeah, it's just, I, I just think about these kinds of things. Uh, Pentecostals, charismatics are not nearly as uh, reluctant to wage spiritual warfare as we are. Uh, in South America and uh, Africa, you're going to see a lot more open spiritual warfare than we're used to in America. And you see supernatural things. Panama, the guy that used to come here, Alex Batista, uh, talks about some things that I am almost even reluctant to say. They sound so 
fantastical uh, that happened with his grandparents who were Pentecostal preachers, I think, both his grandfather and grandmother, but just crazy things. Well, if you believe all that stuff doesn't happen anymore, it kind of limits God, God's ability to use you in those things. Yeah, it does. It, it, it certainly does. So Pentecostals um, do well in areas where there is open spiritual warfare. You limit yourself, essentially, you know, if, you're, if you don't believe in the gifts. But um, I would think most everybody, whether you believe that the miracle gifts are still in play or not, would still understand that there is spiritual warfare and that, you know, demons need to be dealt with. Ted, did you ever see any of that? Any demonic? We saw some other Indians in Suriname and And there were cases where missionaries dealt with the Indians and prayed to exercise the evil spirits. I mean, there was one young boy that kept falling down in the fire and he would fall into the creek and almost drown. And they, you know, some people said, oh, it's just epileptic fits. And, and they finally got to work against that. And then there were other people, you know, the medical people who wanted to try to explain it away. Uh, there were several situations where they, they actually got the elders together and laid hands on and prayed. And the people were delivered. Delivered. So no more of those fits. Well, I think if you discount the miraculous gifts, you're not going to recognize the demonic activity because you explain it away. That's possible. There are some things that are, uh, are going to be a little more difficult to explain away, though. Like, for instance, here's the thing that Panama said. And my friend Jimmy was with me when he met us at... Uh, um, at uh, Barnes and Noble one day we just ran into him and and I can't recall the, the book that he was reading I think it was not a Dallas Willard um, book but it was a very academic kind of a book but he was talking about his his grandparents his grandmother was at a little community fair that kind of a thing and this woman who was a, a gypsy a, a, a palm reader medium was following her and she felt very uncomfortable so she started moving away and she got away she started running got away got in her home and she was just uh, and she looked out the window and the woman was looking at her well what makes this story just almost difficult to believe is that she was on the second story mm. i mean the woman was like levitating right there and then and then she came in grabbed her around the throat and this is again this is panama if you know anybody remember i'm sure some of you remember panama he was from panama alex batista was here for several years and uh that's just not the kind of thing he's going to make up my brother-in-law was in jamaica at the deaf school in jamaica and they were in a service, and at the end of the service, all, simultaneously, three women just fell out into this, hmm. what appeared to be an epileptic fit. Well, the pastor said, you take this one, you take this one, and I'll get this one. And David, my brother-in-law, David Fell, was scared to death. He said, I, I, don't want to, I, I don't want anything to do with that. So he got the youth group together, and they prayed. Mm -hmm. And then he went over, Mary Beth, his wife, sat on the floor and she put this woman's head in her lap. Now this is a deaf woman. For 30 minutes they carried on a conversation. And, um, and, and her voice was like this. But her, her eyes were closed. She's deaf. David is talking with her and she's responding. They're having a conversation. He's having a conversation with the demon. So finally he said after 30 minutes 
I said, I have no idea why I said this, but I said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to blow yourself out of her. And he said, she puffed up her cheeks, just huge, and then just blew and blew, blew out breath. And then she was just went limp, and she looked up and went, and so then, David, who knows some sign language, according to Mary Beth, signed the gospel perfectly. And I told, you know, I was, my son Michael was with me when David was telling us, I said, the Lord gave you the gift of tongues. And Michael said, no, the gift of fingers. <laughs> the gift of fingers. So, but that's exactly, I mean, I, I have to say that that is the use of miraculous gifts. And Pentecostals, like I say, again, why do, why would we say, <clears throat> well, we believe they happen, but we just don't anticipate it. It's a reaction, isn't it? It's a reaction to the abuses, the abuses that you were talking about earlier, where the missionaries go all over the world saying, God's going to give me the gift of tongues, and he doesn't. And they don't prepare. Uh, where the show has to get bigger and better constantly to where you've got people barking like dogs in the spirit and it, it just seems you know it's it's so we react to that and say well it happens but we just don't expect it to happen here because we don't want to get it out of, out of hand here and the church here i think is also in a different con cultural context it is than and, in the global south and that's part of it and satan's tactics are different in different areas. They may be more direct in cultures where animism and demonism are are more open, prominent, prevalent. Yeah. But he doesn't need that here. Why? Why would he want to show himself here when liberalism and and apathy has taken such root? It gets the same effect of people being drawn away from the truth, but without the the frontal attack. So yeah. Satan's tactics are different, and God uses people differently at, at different times and in different places. And, uh, but you're also seeing more of the overt activity here, even here, uh, now. I mean, you're seeing a mix of it. Hmm. The anesthetic effect, not, you know, trying not, uh, not to draw attention to any of that. But you, you do still see uh, oh, yeah. kind of uh, the more... Blatant stuff as well, though. Yep. Satan, I feel like, changed his tactics in, in America. I mean, very abruptly. Mm. When I say Satan, I obviously believe it. Satan, we went from an almost uh, denial as a society. Not, I'm not talking about believers, but a denial of the supernatural to all of a sudden... Touched by an Angel was one of those shows that was beginning, you were beginning to see a shift. All of a sudden now there's supernatural. Why would, when, when man has so effectively reasoned God out of existence, why do you think Satan would now change tactics and say supernatural is okay in America? Because he's taking supernatural away from the biblical context. That's right. And putting it into all the other Mm -hmm. yeah. It has also eroded the eroded the church in large part of the people that would uh, would stand up against it. Yeah. Well, also I think, or um, the or the, um, or the thought process that they would be able to use to stand up against it. I should say. If is it more dangerous to to not believe in anything or to believe everything? Hmm. Well, either will get you in big trouble. But 
if you don't believe in anything, then apologists only have to deal with one thing. You know, I, I can reason with you. Hmm. But if I believe everything, so the, you, you can, you'll, you'll, you'll be trying to talk to me. I'll say, hey, that's cool. I believe that. I just believe this over here as well. And that is more difficult, actually, uh, for a person to come away from that than it is the other. Plus the fact that all the, gosh, I'm probably talking next time's session, but all of the experiments of humanism just royally failed, starting with the French Revolution all the way up to the fall of the Berlin Wall. I mean, 200 years of just miserable humanist failures. Hitler, all of them. Mao Zedong, Stalin, Lenin, Stalin, all of them. Communist countries. We still have people fighting. Even with the historical failure, <laughs> still people. Yeah. Satan's never gonna. not give up. Never give up. Of course, now it's a different type type of totalitarianism that we're worried about. Totalitarianism. It, it's Islam. Mm -hmm. It's well, going to be the big standpoint with the big, communism and all. They'd say, well, didn't have the right leaders or yeah. didn't have you know missed messed, messed up the formula somehow. It wasn't a complete experiment because it wasn't global. Yeah. It wasn't global and it didn't have all at the top of it. Yep. We also have to remember that uh, the Axis included the Arabs and they were following Hitler with his mind comp hmm. theology of his own. And yeah. I think you still see some of that in there. Especially, uh, it was to the Arabs' advantage to follow Hitler with their mortal enemy, the Jews. Well, last thing I'll say about uh, the Pentecostal Charismatic Movement, uh, I did have a kind of a lengthy quote. I won't quote the whole thing from the president of the Christian Research Institute, uh, but basically he voices the concern about uh, the danger, uh, the dangerous area, um, or the extreme of the Pentecostal movement is that it becomes sensational, that it becomes emotional and experiential rather than objective, uh, which we've mentioned before. But they would say this, they would say the issue with us is we're asleep. Is, is the dead orthodoxy? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, which is kind of where we're turning. Again, the pendulum continues to swing. Uh, it, it's difficult to, to write itself, to stand in the middle. So next we're going to turn to fundamentalism, which attempted to right the extremes, and itself became an extreme. Uh, did you want to start out here, or do you want me to dive in? Sure, uh, but let, I, I do want to mention this, um, um, that as of maybe five, ten years ago, 200 million Pentecostals, 200 million Charismatics who are not Pentecostal, and then a large number of third wave. So you can see that this is a fair chunk of Christianity. I don't know what the numbers are for Christians. Anybody know that today? Uh, something like 2 billion uh, out of 6.5 billion people, I would think. But of course you've seen the, the projections that it won't be long at all before Islam is, has a greater number than uh, Christians. Part of that because of the numbers of babies being born uh, into that religion. And we, of course, almost uh, back away. And I, I think this is a reaction 
to liberalism. Not a reaction, but it's, it's a consequence of liberalism. You know, when Christians say, look, we just need to let our kids make their own decisions. They have to make their own decisions. Nobody else is doing that. <laughs> Plus the fact that uh, if we're brought into a covenant community, don't we think our children are, are to be a part of that community and to, and to walk away? But is the, uh, is the aberrant kind of activity not for them to stay part of the covenant community? So fundamentalism was an absolute... Uh, um, reaction to liberalism and when I said sure Neil you go ahead and, and, and take this up I have a lot of thoughts about fundamentalism but I didn't mean to cut you off I just wanted to say that about Pentecostal um, numbers sure um, and then I got talking about other things <laughs> you're allowed uh, well fundamental fundamentalism and again this is going to be one of those areas where that little suffix ISM or IST is really going to change things. Uh, two brothers, I believe they were from, also from Texas, funded personally funded the uh, editing and distribution and publication of 90 essays over the, over a five-year period to hundreds of thousands of seminarians, uh, pastors, theologians, uh, in response to. Uh, liberalism's encroach onto the, the church. They wanted leaders of churches who were grounded in the, the fundamentals of the faith. And that's exactly what we got. Again, this is a wide base. We have people from very conservative, uh, orthodox, traditional churches like B.B. Warfield on into more modern dispensationalists like C.I. Schofield and, and several others. Uh, over the course of the decades in which uh, the fundamentals were dispersed and fundamentalists were gaining strength across the nation. They became increasingly dispensational only, whereas before it had a wide base. And now if, if you don't believe our form of premillennialism, that means you, you read the Bible allegorically. And if you, we all know only liberals read the Bible allegorically, so you're a closet liberal. So that took on a very isolationist mentality uh, where, where it was this pocket of not only fundamental believing people, but fundamentalists. It was us against them. Uh, and, and they sort of closed themselves off. You may have heard it said a, a we-they-siege mentality or perhaps a, a fortress where we're up here in our fortress and whether you're liberal or unbelieving uh, pagan society or a Christian who don't and doesn't agree with us on everything, we're going we're gonna to attack you because we feel like we're being attacked. Uh, so that mentality started taking shape. They became increasingly legalistic. Uh, being strict in their lifestyle and enforcement of that lifestyle, if you wanted to call yourself uh, by those the circles in which uh, fundamentalism was reigning, and also anti-intellectual. It didn't start out that way, but you can see at the pinnacle of fundamentalist power in the Scopes Monkey trial, where that really took shape, where um, um, William Jennings Bryan and Clarence Darrow had their discussion on the courtroom floor being broadcast over across the nation each and every day and Christians were made out to be uh, Neanderthals 
they were uh, anti-intellectual. They did not. They weren't with the times. And the times were Darwinian. The times were very materialistic, and so that that caricature took root, and and fundamentalists really held on to it. And so you see the the whole package of being isolationist, uh, anti-intellectual. They were closed in, uh, and you can see there that. Because they were closed in, you you could have two different types of fundamentalists. Um, those who were like the description listed above, and those who would rather say, you know, I don't call myself a fundamentalist. And that's exactly what J. Gresham Machen did. And I do want to get into Machen again next time as the sort of the, the forefather. He's the forerunner laying the groundwork for evangelicalism to be birthed out of fundamentalism. And again, with all these movements, it's not completely good, not completely bad. It's a mixture. It started out one way and, and developed over decades. And as, as people began to react with the culture and culture's reaction to the church, uh, things have changed. And uh, Machen was a... Uh, I want to read more of him, more from him, because uh, I think he's got a lot that that we can use even today. Yeah, Machen, in fact, refused to go to the Scopes monkey trial. I mean, they wanted him to go, but he saw what was happening. Uh, conservatives, politically, uh, theologians, conservative theologians, oftentimes pick the wrong battles. That was the wrong battle. It was unnecessary. Um, one of the fundamentalists uh, that was of the other stripe from Machen, uh, was J. Frank Norris, pastor in Fort Worth, Texas, large church in Fort Worth, Texas, and uh, he was called a called the pistol packing pastor because he always carried a pistol with him. Which doesn't mean that you know you shouldn't carry. If some of you carry, I'm not. This is not a gun control. I'm not a gun control advocate. You might need but, to start carrying today. <laughs> <laughs> well, Norris thought he did because Norris was was quite vocal against his critics and in fact would name them in the uh, in the titles of his sermons. He talked about the, the mayor of Fort Worth was a Roman Catholic and he was also against prohibition and the fundamentalists of course were for prohibition and so he had a message called rum and Romanism and one of the supporters of the mayor came to his office to debate him about this and Norris shot him four times, killed him, shot him in his office four times, um, and said it was self-defense. It was in Fort Worth, Texas, in the Texas, early part of the... Uh, Texas. Yeah, Texas in the 20th century. Early part of the 20th century. And so... That's Texas. Yeah. I, I went to school at, uh, that was very proud of being a fundamentalist school, Tennessee Temple. Tennessee Temple. Fundamental. Premillennial missionary down the line, never very Baptist is what we were. Um, and Lee Robertson was the president of our school, and he used to always say, "Everything rises and falls on leadership, strong leadership." And fundamentalists, you know, we we're all connected with somebody, and none of us really thinks independently. And fundamentalists often, <coughs> independent Baptist churches say, we're fundamentalists. 
<laughs> those guys are far more beholden than a lot of denominational churches that I know. They're beholden to one another. And <laughs> if you don't do things just the right way, then you are uh, shunned by the larger group. So, in fundamentalism, the reason these guys collected these essays and they sent them to, to schools everywhere, there were, the liberals were in control of almost all of the seminaries of all denominations by this point. Now, we think it's bad now. It, you have no idea what it was like at the first of the century, so, first of the 20th century, so the reaction was understandable, but it, as, as so often happens, it just gets carried away so quickly. Which is why you need accountability to your brothers in Christ in one way or another. And why we, uh, a non-denominational independent church, are connected with the Gospel Coalition. Not officially, but Ricky and I are going down to the conference next week in uh, Orlando for a couple of days. And Tim Keller and John Piper, Presbyterian and a Baptist. Um, a number of others that we think very highly of and who hold one another accountable, D.A. Carson, uh, to the truth and our understanding of Scripture in the way it is. We're connected. And we, it, it's dangerous to become very independent uh, of, of your brothers and mm. sisters in Christ. Who, but it's also dangerous to be too, become too dependent. Too dependent. Uh, because if you look through, through the Bible... When, in the course of the Bible, was the majority in the right? I can't think of a single time. There's usually more that are off, off the mark than there are on the mark. We need to get back to the truth, right? Is it me and Jesus equals the majority? Yeah. Well, talking about that Sunday morning, uh, the gift that the Lord has given to the leaders of the church and the teachers and their role in the church to equip the saints and help the saints understand the difference between orthodoxy and heresy or okay. right doctrine and heresy. But what is the definition of orthodoxy? It's a, it's, it is the majority opinion. It is the rule. Right. It's like the rule. Like I said, throughout the course of the Bible from... From the from the time we from the time we were kicked out of the garden to the end of the apostolic era, when has the majority ever been on God's side? The the majority of the early church. The, or I should say, the was. majority of who? The ma because majority of believers were in one accord and they adhered to the apostles' teaching. Yeah. And it, David, the only the only alternative to what you seem to be pushing is that the independent, the individual, is the ultimate authority. And that is the danger of cults. Because the individual, the individual will draw people to himself. A, 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 a charismatic voice, and I don't mean charismatic as far as the gifts, but a charismatic voice will gather people to himself and then they will follow this person. And he's not accountable to anyone. No, I'm not saying that. Yeah. I'm saying that just as being a, a lone ranger Christian is has its dangers, so does following following the pack. Also, I think both 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 extremes need to be tempered. But absolutely, all I hear, it, all I've heard lately, anyway. On that, on that uh, 
continuum is the lone range, uh, arguing against the lone range. It just happens to be the, the predominant voice in, in our religious culture today. The, the American mindset has, has taken into the Western church of being your own church. Uh, I, I don't need to go to church. I can stay home and watch it on, on TV or on the internet. Uh, I can decide for myself. And I'll go back to Luther on this. Remember that he said that uh, uh, responding to the objection from the Catholic Church that well, what you're saying is that everyone has the, uh, the right to misinterpret Scripture. And he said, no, everyone has the right to interpret Scripture. No one has the right to misinterpret it. Uh, it just happens to be like homosexuality. It's not that the church is thrusting that uh, topic onto culture. It happens to be a cultural thing, a phenomenon now that is being brought to the fore, and the church must respond to it. And, and that happens to be one of the voices that the church is uh, contemporarily responding to. And the last one that will, the last movement of the 20th century that we'll cover this evening before we look forward to next time, where again we return to Machen and, and Henry, who we'll mention in just a moment, of evangelicalism. We return to uh, Karl Barth and his reformulation of orthodoxy. When we think of neo-orthodoxy, we're like, okay, well, orthodoxy is in there. That means it's just for a new generation. This is a good thing, right? Like everything, yes and no. Um, Brad, do you want to jump in on maybe some of the the ideas that Bart was putting forth and in, in his response to liberalism? Well, his response was very sharp. Uh, he was blessed with considerable uh, intellectual gifts, and so consequently. Uh, ridiculed the liberals, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the idea that uh, 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 Christianity without the supernatural is no Christianity at all. Um, impacted, ha ha was quite uh, <coughs> connected with his times. One of the people that he corresponded with uh, frequently was uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer uh, came to America during the 30s when Hitler was rising in power. And he was here for uh, about a year, and Bart was encouraging him, get back to Germany, get back to Germany, your place is in Germany. The German believers wanted to get Bonhoeffer out of, out of Germany, but Bart was saying, no, your place is in Germany. But interestingly, we, Neil and I were talking about this earlier, when Bonhoeffer came to America, he went to... Uh, Fosdick's church and heard Fosdick preach and totally rejected it. Could not believe the state of American Christianity. Um, the Bible is said to contain within it the inspired witness, but it is a mistake to directly read that for me, Nehemiah. To directly identify Scripture as the Word of God. Uh, it is an instrument to communicate and witness to the true word, which is Jesus. Yes, and like I said, all of Bart's theology goes through Jesus. It was at a conference that uh, our, uh, Bart was leading, and there was a question and answer time. And Carl Henry, who we'll talk about a little bit later, said, uh, Dr. Bart, would you say that Scripture, 
that the Bible is indeed the inerrant word of God or not. And he said, excuse me, who are you? And the place laughed, and everybody laughed. And he said, Carl Henry, Christianity Today. And, Mr. and Dr. Bart said, uh, Christianity yesterday, and the place just, just roared with laughter because they were all Bart fans. And when that laughter died down, uh, Carl Henry said, yesterday, today, and forever. Christianity, yesterday, today. And, and he admitted later, that's poor exegesis, but he, he got his point across. Is that God doesn't change with the times. And Bart, with this new orthodoxy, said, yes, this is the Word of God, but may be different for you than for me and it, we really only understand scripture in so much as we understand Jesus and we understand him on a personal level so we give scripture authority in our lives um, so he accepted the higher criticism of scriptures but he believed that exegesis must be based more on historical inquiries or inquiries yeah, he's thinking more there that uh, Christianity is more experiential than propositional. And again, it's, it's not an either-or. We must believe the faith that was delivered to the church, but we also must live out that faith. That the Spirit must regenerate and enliven us and give us life and ability to live it out. If we try to do one or just the other, we're not living out biblical Christianity. And uh, again, that's the benefit and drawback of neo-orthodoxy, where that it, it does accentuate an experience with Jesus, but it's based on your subjective experience and not the objective truth as revealed in Scripture. It, it makes a, a figure like Karl Barth so difficult to get your arms and your head and your arms around because there's so much of about his theology with which we would disagree, but this, the, the benefit to the church, to Jesus' church, is incalculable for what Bart did in stopping what seemed like to, to be an inexorable tide of, away from any authority whatsoever uh, in Scripture. Yeah, it really was an abrupt opposition to liberalism that ended up, you can see from the, uh, the second bullet there, that it ended up doing to uh, biblical theology what liberalism did. So it became its own enemy, and we saw that in the 60s it had mostly died away from the, the founders. Uh, as they passed, so did the majority of their, their understanding. But uh, there are still contingents of it living out today that uh, we're still dealing with. So it was a middle road between liberalism and Reformed Protestant uh, Orthodoxy. So as the middle road, you're going to get something right, but you're also going to get plenty of things wrong that uh, will eventually uh, be dangerous. We've covered a lot. We've had a lot of good uh, input and ideas tossed out. And I was, I was thinking also about um, the, the fundamentalism and how it reminded me of the... Uh, in the seminaries and schools were mostly taken over by liberals, uh, and it reminded me of the, the desert uh, monks and that debate, which we could still have today. Do you live among the world? Do you withdraw from the world? 
and uh, liberals live so much among the world, they, they were like Lot and they cast their tent outside the city and ended up being identified more with the city than, than with God. And then the fundamentalists are more like the monks who withdrew, did some good, but really were only a force to themselves. They had no impact, no lasting, robust impact on the, the culture around them. But no, instead, but when you... The future. Say again? No, but they did to the future. That's where we have our Bible from. Right. If it weren't for them, we wouldn't have... I mean, well, God would have found a way to preserve it. But... They as, were the means. As it stood... If it weren't for them, we wouldn't have it. Yep. It's fair, and that in the same vein as if it weren't for Bart. Yeah. You know, right. both from different angles. And so with the fundamentals. Yeah. That if it weren't for the pieces and the people that God put in particular places at a particular time, uh, we could imagine that liberalism and and uh, paganism would have its run. I think that's we're always struggling to get it right. Yeah. Uh, we're always struggling to get it right. And I think God really has place for all different areas. You can't say this one thing is right, this one thing is right, this one thing is right. Like, you know, like I said, without the monks pulling themselves off, that's how God uh, preserved His Scripture for future generations. Yeah. That, you know, in ways that we know, we know that we have, what we have is what is is reliable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was recorded and saved in those monasteries, so we really can be thankful that God knows what He's doing. Uh, it's not a process or open theology where God doesn't know. If, you, if you're not aware of open theology, and we may touch on this again next time too, is that God doesn't know foreknow everything. He's just been around long enough where He guesses right a lot. And so, since He doesn't know something could happen that he didn't guess correctly. Well, what does that do? That throws the inerrancy and authority of Scripture out the window. That means that he's not sovereign because something could happen that he wasn't anticipating. Um, it's, he ceases to be God if he's not sovereign and, and all-knowing, but we can be thankful that he is and that despite what we see around us, uh, he knows what he's doing, and he's got us in the right place, and we need to be uh, literate in his word, and we need to be discerning. We need to pray for humble spirits and wise and sharp minds so that we can be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves, even as we prepare to give answers to those around us who, who ask a reason for the hope that we have within us. Yeah, I think um, the reason for... The idea that for process theology, for for God not knowing the future, I am drawing an absolute blank tonight. Here and here and here, the the theological term. What is it right now? Open theism. Open theism. I, I can't believe I couldn't remember, couldn't recall open theism. It's making an excuse for God. It's always trying to make God palatable mm. to society and. You can't do that. And we are, as Neil said, with some of the social issues of the day, we're going to have to um, gonna have to make determinations. Being up in New York last week in the middle of truly what 
seems to be the avant-garde of the 21st century, these young artists who are at the top of the game. I mean, the absolute top of their game. Just the ways of, uh, the, they process things, the way they think about things. Um, you see what's happening all around us. And again, we picked the wrong battles. Indiana was probably the wrong battle. And yet we're all going to have to take a stand at some point. But you know what's interesting to me, and um, maybe talking about this in the not too distant future on Sunday morning, but what's, um, what is the, the, the nature of the armor that we are given in Ephesians 6, the spiritual armor that we're giving, given. What's that? It is. It's mostly defensive in nature. It's very little offensive. It's mostly, you know, the shield of faith, the helmet, salvation shoes, and, and those shoes, those Roman shoes, were spiked where they would be able to stand when they would make that tortoise shell, you know, that you see in... Uh, uh, gladiator. Like the sword is included. <laughs> the sword is included. It absolutely is. Uh, the Word of God. <laughs> Say that. What? What? The Word of God, yes. Yes, it is. So it's included, and you've got to, to fight, but most of it is defensive in nature. It's sort of to shield yourself against the attacks and to stand. And that's what he says. And above all, when, when you are attacked, you need to stand. And so when. The kingdom of God advances, it advances as we share the gospel. Uh, as a covenant community and individually, as wherever we go, as you go, Matthew 28 is saying, as you go, it's expected that you will be going. Make disciples of all nations. Well, that's all for this evening. We'll pick up again in this same stream of 20th century movements as we uh, come right up to the doorstep of our 21st century heritage to where we are. And uh, you can finish out Gonzalez's book. Be sure to check out the links online to uh, listen to some more uh, audio classes as in preparation. And I look forward to, to next time.